Well, if you have kids, you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, time and time and time again, that's not what? Fair, right? That's not fair. But what that assumes is that there is a universal set of parameters by which something should be determined to be fair or not. But what we find if we apply a little logic to the situation is that what is fair is not always what is right. Take, for example, this. My eight-year-old daughter might look at her and me and say, well, both of us are human beings, so we should both have the same rights, so give me the keys to your car. I'm going to go drive your car down the freeway because that's what's fair. You're a human being, and you're allowed to drive, so I'm a human being. I should be allowed to drive. Well, we would say that that's maybe fair according to those parameters, but is that right? No, that's not right, right? Hopefully, you would all agree with that. Or maybe you would say, uh, you know, I'm a grown man and I own a car. I don't know anything about my car or how to change the oil or how to do anything with it. But hey, I'm a grown man and I own a car. So you should bring your broken down car to me and pay me to try to fix it rather than taking it to a trained mechanic. Why? Well, we're both grown men and we both have cars. So there's the parameters of what is fair or not fair. And so it's not fair that you would pay him to try to fix the car just because he has a background in automotive repair. You would say, well, That may be fair according to your parameters, but that doesn't mean that it's right. See, we judge fairness according to our perception of what the parameters should be. And what we're coming to with this passage this morning, this concept of the way that God applies the atonement to us in the the overall scheme of redemptive history, a lot of times as men, we are, and I use men in the terms of just as, as human beings, we are tempted to, to throw our, our fists in the air and say to the Lord, yes, but that's not fair. And so what we'll do is we'll get imaginative and we'll get creative to try to work our way around what the text says in order to make it more palatable to us or more fair. But what we have to bear in mind, as the first goal up there says, is that everything that God does in redemptive history is for what? His glory. And that includes how he takes what we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 2 and applies it to us and applies it to believers and applies it to Christians. How he takes the atonement, that is the satisfaction of his wrath against our sin, and brings it to and applies it to us as Christians. So that's where we're going to be in our series and in our text this morning. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9 and seeing how God in all of his glory, takes the atonement and applies it to believers and what that means for the rest of mankind as well. So grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 9, if you would. And we're going to read together to start verses 6 through 13, which is jumping in, I understand, in the middle of the passage, but we'll back up and we'll catch up with the first five verses as well. But Paul writes this in Romans 9, 6. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the younger, or sorry, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a difficult passage, difficult text, difficult chapter in Romans, and we pick up with Paul 
making this statement in verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Well, why would we believe that the word of God has failed? Well, to get that, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 9, and Paul writes this in verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, I could wish rather, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Now we need to stop right there. I want us to think about the context of the book of Romans. Think about where Paul has just come in Romans chapter 8 the pinnacle of one of the most encouraging passages you can think about for the, the, the entire argument there that, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Then chapter nine, and I myself, Paul says, am in unceasing sorrow and anguish over what, Paul? What reason do you have to be sorrowful? You just wrote about Romans 8. You just wrote about these great, amazing truths about our security in Christ. What makes you grieve? He says, I grieve over my kinsmen, the Israelites. And he says, I would even give my salvation if it meant that all of them would be saved. But he describes these Israelites. And he describes them this way in verses 4 through 5. He says, they are Israelites. And to them belong, notice, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, even is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul's looking at these things, saying, This is amazing for us to think about. Look, this, these are the Israelites. They're the ones that had all the promises initially given to them, the oaths given to them, the covenants given to them, the, the law given to them. They were God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, it's from their line that Jesus himself even emerged. That's what leads him to 9.6 to say, but it's not as though these promises that the Israelites received have failed. See, Paul's looking at the state of Israel at the time going, they've rejected Christ. They've rejected the Messiah. They have not bowed the knee to Jesus. And so he's saying, had have the promises failed? And his answer is no, they haven't. Why? Well, he continues. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's introducing this separate category. That just because you are a physical descendant of the Israelites does not make you part of Israel in God's economy. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Well, what's the promise? Look at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Think about that context and, and go back in your minds to the Old Testament. And think back to our daily Bible reading through the book of, of Genesis there. And you've got Abraham and you've got Sarah. And how old is Sarah when the angel comes to Abraham and says to him, hey, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. How old is, is Sarah? 89. Says in the text that the next year she gives birth to the son Isaac. She's 90. How many 90-year-old women are having babies these days? Yeah, it was the same back then too. See, God intentionally chose a woman who was barren in past childbearing age to provide the child of the promise 
who was not Abraham's only child, was he? Who did Abraham have before Isaac? Ishmael, right? Now, Abraham had Ishmael by natural means. He slept with Hagar. Hagar became pregnant and conceived because she was of childbearing age, and she was not barren, and she produced naturally Ishmael. And Abraham even went to the Lord as the Lord was giving him his covenant and and asked God that he would bless him through Ishmael and just be satisfied with Ishmael. But God told Abraham, no, I'm not going to use Ishmael. I've instead chosen to use a child that is going to come through supernatural means, a child that is going to come through even the suspension of natural law, because Sarah, who is barren and past childbearing age, she is going to have a child and that is going to be the son of the promise. You see, God was setting up his sovereign will, even in choosing not Ishmael, but Isaac. Well, Abraham understood that point. Isaac then goes on to marry a woman whose name was Rebekah, and this idea of God's selection or choice continues even with them because she becomes pregnant with twins. And it says in verse 11, though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Notice what he's saying here. He's clearly setting up that this has nothing to do with their character, has nothing to do with their decisions, has nothing to do with their choices that they were going to make, and everything to do with God's sovereign choice and sovereign decision. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of, and here's the word that makes us uncomfortable, election. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the, young, the older rather will serve the younger. Again, this is God saying, I'm going to do what, what natural law doesn't do, what, what normal mankind doesn't do. In normal humanity, what happens? The younger serves the older. God's going, hey, in, in my economy here, it's going to be the opposite. The older is going to serve the younger. Why? Because I'm choosing the younger, not the older. I'm doing what you don't expect here. And he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul's causing us or wanting us to beg the question, okay, why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why Jacob and not Esau? Why some Israelites, Paul, and not all Israelites? Not all Israel is true Israel. We can carry it even further. Why some people today are saved and not others? And then we can get down into our, our own kitchen, so to speak, and say, why me and not somebody else? And the answer to those questions is the same. And that is because of God's sovereign plan for salvation. Because of how God sovereignly chooses to take the atonement and to apply it to those that he has chosen to apply it to. In appealing to Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, even as he says, Paul does in the text, he's appealing to God's doctrine of election. And he's going back to the Old Testament with the the earliest stages even in the Old Testament to show that this is not some doctrine that's new on the scene in the, the New Testament, but that was there with God's selection of his people in the Old Testament. And then it also appears with Jesus, and it also appears, as we'll see later, in the, the church as well. That Paul's saying that this is a thread that, that courses through the entirety of the Bible, this doctrine that God sets his affections on some, that God chooses some. And that's what election is really all about. It's about God's sovereign decree, his free choice of some made in eternity past, not based on what you and I would do, but based solely on his will. He chooses to save some from 
destruction, from hell, from eternal torment and anguish. And he does so through the application of the atoning work of Jesus. Man, our first point this morning is this. We need to humbly acknowledge the reality of election. And that word humbly is not meant for you if you're out there saying that you're uncomfortable with this doctrine. It's meant for people like me who this doctrine is, is more comfortable for us. We need to hold it with humility, men. We may not love it. We may not like it. We may not be comfortable with it. But men, here's the reality. I, I, I don't see, and I'm going to show us even a little bit more as we walk through the, the remainder of this point here. I don't see how we can avoid the fact that this is a biblical doctrine. Paul calls it out and names it in Romans chapter 9 as he's appealing to how God interacted with Abraham and with Jacob and Esau. It's a doctrine that preserves the full glory of God when it comes to salvation, right? Because if I had nothing to do with my salvation, if that choice was made by God in eternity past, not based on works, as he says there in the text that we just read. It's not based on anything I've done, not based on my works. It's just simply solely based on God's sovereign free choice, his free will. If that's where my salvation lies, then who gets all the glory for my salvation? God does. And I get none. See, man, I don't even bring my faith to the table. My faith is wrought within me that I am born again, I am regenerated and given the faith to believe. If I were to ask for a show of hands in the room, how many in the room are comfortable with this doctrine and even believe in it, I'm confident I wouldn't get 100%. But man, can I show you for a minute why I do believe that this is a scriptural doctrine, a biblical doctrine, and one that though we may not be comfortable with, we do need to acknowledge. As I mentioned, it began with Israel, and we've seen some of that already, but it continues, Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are, God is speaking to his people, Israel, a people holy to the Lord. Even that word there, you are set apart to the Lord. Well, he didn't set apart the Canaanites. He didn't set apart the Philistines. He didn't set apart the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, or the Persians. He set apart Israel. He elected and chose Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's the concept that we're driving at right there. Out of all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 135 verse 4 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Again, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose Israel. Isaiah 43.10 you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He chose Israel to know him, believe him, and understand that he is God. Again, he didn't choose the Philistines to know him, believe him, and understand that he is God. He didn't choose the Egyptians to know him, believe him, and understand that he is God. He didn't choose the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the, the Perizzites, the Hittites, all the other ites to know him, believe him, and understand that he is God. He chose Israel. Again, God has elected, and that's been his pattern from the very beginning of creation. It began with Israel, but it continued in the teaching of Jesus himself. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we say, well, there it is. Whoever comes to God. See, it's a choice I'm making to come to God. Yes, but who are the ones that will come to Jesus? John 6, 37 makes it plain. Who are those that will come to Jesus? Those the Father gives to him. No one who the Father has not first given to Christ will come to Christ. 
Those that come to Jesus are simply those the Father has given him. Jesus makes it more explicit in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And men, because we're not universalist, right? Because we don't believe that everyone is gonna die and go to heaven regardless of their path of life. Because we believe that there is an existence of hell, that means that God is not drawing everyone to himself, but has only decided to and chosen to draw some. It was there in the Old Testament with Israel. It was there with the teaching of Jesus. It was also there with the teaching of the early church, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed the gospel there in the book of Acts? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Appointed by whom? God. If you weren't appointed, you didn't believe. Paul says in Romans 8.33, he's using the word here, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, who are the elect? Those whom God justifies. 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they, who's the they in that context of this verse? The elect, that they might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. To confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This may make you frustrated and, and make you angry, and maybe you're even sitting out there boiling a little bit right now may make you frustrated to think that God would save some to salvation, but not all. That God would choose some for salvation, but not all. That God would make that decision in eternity past before we've done anything. And that may raise the question of whether or not that's truly fair. Or to, to put that question a different way, whether or not that's truly just. And Paul knew that his original audience was going to have the same questions, and that's why he anticipated the question. And the reason why I landed on Romans 9 to preach this doctrine is because Romans 9 is such a beautiful uh, rhetorical argument here as Paul anticipates the objections as he's laying out the doctrine throughout this chapter. Because look at verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul knows this is a difficult thing to swallow. He knows this is a difficult thing for us to, to, to deal with here. That the, the fleshly part of us is going to want to say, yes, but God, that's not fair that you would choose some and not others. And so God, through Paul, understands, anticipates this. And Paul anticipates the objection in verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. By no means. It's the emphatic rejection of that. The same way that he does in Romans 6, verse 1, when he says, what should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. In verse 14 here, what then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's saying the same thing. Absolutely not. By no means. For why? Well, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, the difficulty of this doctrine has led to some differing views on God's sovereignty and God's election out there. And here's one of the most common ones, and that is this. There are those that will say, well, here's what God's doctrine of election means. It means that before he created, God, in his divine foreknowledge, he was able to foresee the choices, the free choices that human beings would make. And he chose to create the best scenario in which the most people would choose him, would choose Christ. That's election. That his elect are those that he foresaw would decide for and choose Jesus. And the reason that they put forward a doctrine like that is because that then lets God off the hook of this being a charge against his justice. But really all that does is kick the can down the road, right? Because God still chose to create that particular reality and not a different one. He still chose to create that reality where these people would choose to be saved, but not those people. So it's still back to God's sovereign election, but what we've done is we've created this scenario. It's called the middle knowledge view of God's sovereignty. And what I believe that Paul's doing here is actually arguing even against that specifically. Because he says this in verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, God's choice here doesn't have anything to do with what I do. It doesn't have anything to do with my will or my exertion. In other words, it, it wasn't God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in their divine counsel beforehand kind of laying out on the draft table all of the different scenarios of creation going, well, let's choose this one because the most people will choose us in this scenario and not the others. Because if that's the case, then it does depend on human will or exertion. But Paul's saying in verse 16 here, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. Paul quotes here from Exodus 33. And in this scene in, in Exodus 33, we find Moses asking to see the glory of God. And, and in the background of this, what's just happened is Moses has come down from the Mount Sinai with the, the Ten Commandments, with the two tablets. And he hears the sound of what sounds like rejoicing in the camp. And he comes down and he sees that Aaron and all the Israelites have created a, a what? A golden calf. And they were worshiping this. Well, that obviously drew the ire of God, drew the wrath of God, drew the anger of God. And God breaks out against the camp of the Israelites and he kills 3,000 people. 3,000 people, but not everybody. Just 3,000. And in that context, God reveals himself to Moses, the backside of his glory. And as he does so, as he passes by, he says to Moses what his name is. And as he passed by, he declares to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, God is identifying as part of his divine character and his divine right that he has the prerogative to exercise mercy as he sees fit and compassion as he sees fit. But that's part of who he is. That in lashing out against the 3,000 whom he wiped out for their worship of the golden calf, he could have wiped out all of the Israelites that were down there. He chose not to. He chose not to kill Aaron. But he chose to kill those 3,000. Why those 3,000? Why not everybody else? Because it's part of his divine prerogative. 
to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. So then, the conclusion, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, men, you are in Christ, not because of a decision that you've made, but because of a decision that God has made to save you. And that decision was made in eternity past. That decision was not made by God when he looked at you and thought, hey, you know what, that guy, he's a pretty good guy. He would probably be a good investment of my mercy and my grace. No, he saved you before you've done anything so that it's not on the basis of human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's part of his divine character, his divine right. And that's our second point this morning. We need to humbly recognize God's sovereign right to save or not. Humbly recognize God's sovereign right to save or not not. Paul illustrates this through pointing back to another individual in, in history, and that was who? Rhymes with Shmero, starts with a, a PH. Pharaoh, yeah. Pharaoh, right? He looks back at Pharaoh and he says this in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. What's that purpose, God? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's a reference back to Exodus 9, 16, where we read, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is difficult for us, right? Because essentially what God is saying here about Pharaoh is that God created Pharaoh and Pharaoh was never going to bow the knee to him. That God created Pharaoh and Pharaoh was never going to be saved. That God created Pharaoh and Pharaoh was never going to become part of God's people. Pharaoh was never going to humble himself. So even when Charlton Heston went before the throne and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. There was never a shot in God's green earth that Pharaoh was going to humble himself before God. Why? Because God created him for a different purpose. And that purpose was established before the foundation of the earth. Not based on anything that Pharaoh was going to do or not do. And so we read in the text, what? That Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then we also read what? That God hardened his heart that God hardened his heart. And and then there's other passive events in that whole category where it's Pharaoh's heart was hardened. See, God chose to use Pharaoh as an object lesson of what we're talking about here. That God created Pharaoh for one purpose and that is to get glory over him, to further display his glory. And see, men, that's the reality of election and and non-election here. In, in both instances, God is acting for his glory. Pharaoh became, as we'll see here in the text, as Paul's going to call him momentarily, a, a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. But men, this, this doesn't make God a cosmic four-year-old with a magnifying glass zap frying ants as he sees fit. No, but rather God is always doing something, working towards something, working towards the accomplishment of a certain goal. And that goal is the furthering, the magnification, the exaltation of what? His glory. It's not meaningless. It's not random. It's not pointless. It's not gratuitous. 
It's glorious, no matter what he does. Paul says in verse 18, then, so then, again, he has mercy on whomever he wills. It's his divine right, his prerogative, and he hardens whomever he wills. And maybe you're still uncomfortable with this, maybe even more uncomfortable with it now than you were before, because now the question is not, is this unjust? But now the question is, then how can he still hold people guilty if this is decided in eternity past? If Pharaoh never had a shot, then how is he still guilty? Well, men, we're going to find a lot of different types of people and sinners in hell, right? But one thing that you will never find in hell is an innocent person. We've looked at that already, right, in Romans chapter 1, that we are storing up wrath for ourselves, Romans 2, 5, on the day of judgment, that wrath is being revealed, Romans chapter 1, against all ungodliness. Romans chapter 5, we saw that this is a universal pandemic that has affected every single human being from the dawn of time onward except for Jesus Christ. That, men, we are guilty. See, the Bible teaches two things, and it teaches two things in parallel, that God is 100% sovereign and we are 100% responsible. And so that, those that are in hell are 100% responsible for their being in hell and their guilt is their own. And we say, well, how? How can they be held accountable if God chose to save some and not everybody? Well, again, Paul anticipated that question. And he does so in the next part of our passage. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? There's our question. Why, God, why do you still hold people accountable to this then? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So if you've been sitting out there this morning thinking to yourself, why are we dealing with Romans 9? Romans 9 is all about Israel. Romans 9 is about Jews. This isn't about us. Hopefully that last verse says why. Because Paul says this is not only about the Jews, but also about the Gentiles. See, man, this is how God has been in operation and acting, not just with his people Israel, but also with the church, also with us. But he begins, you will say, this is the question, why do you still find fault, God? Why do you hold us accountable? Who can resist your will? The implied answer there is nobody can. Nobody can resist the will of God. And so we question and we argue and we want to take up this debate, again, put our fist in the air and say, what, is, what gives with this? This doesn't measure up to our parameters, again, of what we define as what is fair and what is unfair. But Paul says to us, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then he inserts this analogy of the potter and the clay. He says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, men, we are getting down to the base doctrine of creation right now. And that is that he is creator, we are the created. 
And Paul takes us into the workshop of the artisan potter. And he puts us in the presence of the man who sits there with his lump of clay. And he pulls out one and he fashions a goblet to be used in a royal palace. And he sets it aside and he pulls out another one and he fashions a toilet. And he asks the question, who are you to sit there and look at the artist, look at the potter, look at the creator and say, how dare you? Has the potter no right over the clay? The answer to that question is what? Of course he does, right? Of course he does. He is the creator, the clay, the, the clay rather is his creation. But now we see a little bit more beyond this of God's thought process in that act of creating. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared before him for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Man, have you ever been so unbelievably thirsty that when you finally get a glass of water, you, you just think to yourself, this tastes better than anything I've ever drank before. Well, did anything change about the water? No, what changed? You knew thirst. See, sometimes when we see the negative, it magnifies the positive. And that's what Paul is saying God is doing with creation here creating vessels of wrath to magnify his glory in the minds, in the exaltation, in the worship of the vessels of mercy that he has prepared. See, in electing some but not all, God has revealed more of his glory and his power, which in turn causes the elect to praise him all the more for the glory and the mercy that they have received. See, God has a purpose, man, in what he does. He always has a purpose in what he does, and that purpose is to glorify himself. That's why this doctrine exists. That's why he chose. That's why he prepared vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy for his glory. The purpose of the doctrine of election is not to make people angry. It's to glorify God. That's our final point this morning. Humbly understand God's purpose in election. Humbly understand God's purpose in election, which is his glory. God is the, the ultimate diamond, right? As we consider his character, it's like a multifaceted diamond. And we see his holiness and his justice and his kindness and his omniscience and his power and his goodness, his creative activity. We see all of these different elements of God's character, men. And as a light hits that one side, it refracts through and, and, and you see other sides and other sides are emphasized. And well, what, what Paul's arguing here, men, is, is as the light of God's glory shines on the character of his wrath being poured out on the vessels of wrath, what that does is on the flip side, it magnifies his mercy and his glory and the beauty of those things for the vessels of mercy, which cause us as vessels of mercy to in, in turn exalt and glorify God. You see, men, as hard as this is for us to swallow, without hell, we know less of God's wrath. We know less of God's justice. We know less of God's holiness, which means we know less of God's character, which in turn means we have less to glorify him for. 
God's purpose for the elect and non-elect is the same, to bring glory to himself. To trace the argument here, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, did what? Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Prepared by who, men? Prepared by who? God. Vessels of wrath prepared by God. For what? Destruction. Destruction under what? Wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. What if God, desiring to show his power, again, reveal more of who he is, reveal more of his character, what if God, desiring to reveal more of his character, prepared vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why, God? Right, that's what we want to ask. Why? Why would you do that, God? Verse 23, in order to, for the purpose that he might, what? Make known the riches of his glory. To who? Vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. Again, God's created them as well. For what purpose? For glory. Whose glory? Whose glory? God's glory. Not the glory of the, the, the vessels of mercy. No, his glory. So you see, men, God is glorified in both the eternal judgment of the non-elect and the eternal deliverance of the elect. Both magnify his glory. Hell is not an eternal oopsie from God's perspective. It's a, a, a tough pill to swallow, and I understand that. But hell is an intentional place of God's judgment. It's a place where we see his wrath. We see more clearly his justice. We see more clearly his holiness. Whereas if it did not exist, we would not see those things and understand them in the same way, which means we would not exalt him for his mercy and his grace and his goodness in the same way. Then God has saved us not so that we'll go to heaven and not to hell. At the end of the day, men, God saved us. He elected us so that he would receive all the glory for delivering us. God saved us not that we would go to heaven and be in the blissful presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for all of eternity, free from all of the, the sin and side effects of sin. We get to enjoy that, yes, and that's a blessing that we get to enjoy, but the reason why he saved us is so that in that existence, we would glorify him, praise him, worship him for those things for all of eternity. God is inherently consumed with himself in everything that he does. It is never about us. Ever, ever, ever. Always and only is it about him. And in being about himself, he has extended to us grace and mercy and love, and we get to enjoy the benefits of those things. But those things are all still about him and about his glory. I think Paul sums it up well in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. He says, for God has not destined us. He's not destined us for wrath, who are in Christ, that is, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The charge that's often brought against the doctrine of election is this. Well, then why bother with evangelism? If God has those that are elect, then they'll be saved. Why bother with evangelism? If you believe in election, you have to hate missions is basically the, the, the charge, right? But man, I, I think that's a, as backwards as you can be. Because though I believe that the, the doctrine of election is inherently scriptural and biblical, I also am well aware that God has not built into any single one of us an election radar, has he? So we don't know who are the elect and who are the non-elect. I often say this, believe like a Calvinist and witness like an Arminian. Go share the gospel like it is up to free will to be saved. Go share the gospel with every single person as though they might be part of God's elect because at the end of the day, they may be part of God's elect. We don't know who is and who's not. And so rather than robbing your sails of the, the wind of evangelistic zeal, this should blow more gusto into your evangelistic zeal because this removes the, the burden from our shoulders for our loved ones and the people in our, our family to say, well, you have to convince them to be saved. You have to, to, to close the deal with that person to get them into heaven. You can't close the deal. You can't save them. It's all who that does that work. God does that work. He does the heavy lifting, right? So this frees us up to go and share the gospel with everyone that we can possibly share the gospel with, knowing that if they are part of God's people, he is going to open their eyes and they will repent from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So what do we do? We go and we share the gospel. We go back time and time and time and time again. And just like George Mueller, we pray year after year after year after year after year after year after year that God would save them not knowing when he might do that. In fact, Paul, who just laid out this doctrine in Romans chapter nine, look what he says across the page in Romans chapter 10. He says this in verse 13, for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who are those that are gonna call on the name of the Lord? John six forty four: those whom the father is drawing. The ones that will call on the name of the Lord are the ones that God is calling to himself, right? That's the doctrine of election. But the ones who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to, to believe in him or call on him rather in verse 14, whom they have not believed? But how are they going to believe in whom, him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. See, man, the, the, the instruments of God's saving power in the, the lives of his elect are, are his people. It's you and I on mission. That's why Jesus gave the great commission. Jesus, who's the one who said, no one can come to me unless the father draws him, also said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all peoples. See, God uses us as mouthpieces to bring them the, the good news of the gospel to those that he has set apart for salvation from before the, the dawn of time. If you've had the privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody and that person has come to faith in Jesus Christ, it had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with God. You were simply the mouthpiece that he used sovereignly to bring you to salvation. Whoever it was that first shared the gospel with you, you, yes, be thankful for that person in your life. But honestly, men, it had nothing to do with them and everything to do with God using them as the mouthpiece 
to open our eyes to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So does election negate evangelism? No, quite the opposite. I think it frees us up to be some of the most evangelistic people that the world has ever known. Because we go out and share the gospel not to add another notch to our belt, but to see God add another notch to his. He does the heavy lifting. Let's pray. Lord, we confess these are heavy subjects. And Lord, I'm thankful at the end of the day that no matter what side we fall on on this issue, this is not a matter of gospel priority, meaning this is not a matter of whether or not a person is saved or not if they agree with or believe in the doctrine of election or don't. And so we can still be brothers in Christ and extend the right hand of fellowship and love one another and hug one another and pray with one another and enjoy one another's company, Lord. But at the end of the day, God, I I pray that you would allow each man to wrestle with the truth of, of Scripture and to ask themselves, well, what does the Bible teach? And we do see, Lord, that you clearly teach both the the responsibility of man, and yet at the same time, the full sovereignty that you exercise over us. And somehow, those two things operate in parallel with one another. Father, I pray for these small groups, that they would be beneficial, edifying, Lord, and, and opportunities for clarity and for grace and compassion towards one another as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.